Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. So it's springtime. I don't know if you noticed, um, but like everyone is outdoors. I, everyone is outdoors. It's like everybody on my neighborhood suddenly came out of hibernating and then out into their yards doing yard work or walking along the street. And yesterday was beautiful. I mean, we couldn't ask for a better day um, than to gather at the park um, and to do a little egg hunt and to have some treats and stuff. And um, one of the things that warm weather does is it sort of like brings hope and like gets you kind of excited. I don't know if it's like the fog of February in Minnesota passes and then April is just like, there's a world out there. And like, I'm excited about it and summer is coming. Um, But I had one of those moments yesterday after most of the people left, um, there was an open field, there was grass, the sun was hot, I'm gonna start to feel a little bit of the sun. And uh, somebody had brought along football. And after everyone left, we started tossing the football around Um, and enjoying the weather, enjoying the field. And um, listen, one of the things that this time of year does is it reminds me of how much I love sports. Like, I just, I really do. And and it reminds me, even last week with my own ankle and its injury, it's it's getting better. It's not 100%, but it's about there. Um, And it reminds me that I I just love games. I love games. So we're throwing the football. And of course, it didn't take more than a few passes for us to forget that we aren't as young as we used to be. <laughs> For me, it was my arm. Like, I was like, I got this, I got this. And I throw as far as I can, and then my shoulder's starting to feel it. And for someone else, they stretch out to get a pass and found themselves tumbling to the ground, <laughs> not quite as fast as they used to be. And we're, we're laughing about these things, um, but it's, it's true. There's something about this time of the year that sort of invites us outdoors and back into sports. God actually um, used soccer as a sport significantly in my life. Um, I don't know how many of you know this story, some of you do, but um, see, soccer was my first love, and Laura knows this, all right, Laura knows this, she's over there, she's here, soccer was my first love, Um, and she saw the breakup, right, She, she was there in the midst of it, and it wasn't one of those, like, clean breaks, I mean, it was an ugly cry all the way. Like, I was sobbing. I could not. I was shaking. When soccer and I broke up, like, it was a thing. Because here's the deal. I had given my life to the game. I mean, I loved it. I sacrificed for it. I practiced every day. I couldn't be more content with just like a soccer ball and an open field and a goal in front of me. I used to drive around and I'd have like about a dozen, maybe more soccer balls in my trunk. Just any time I could get out and start playing. I loved this game. I served it. I sacrificed for it. I gave myself to it. But the interesting thing is that as I oriented my whole life around the game, I started to have a problem. I was trying to gain something from soccer that it was never designed to give. I was trying to gain something from soccer that it was never designed to give. And perhaps you've experienced that same dynamic. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in your vocation. Maybe it's um, in your own endeavors to achieve or maybe to belong. You've, You've tried to get something from someone or something that could never give it in the first place. You put something at the center 
something at the core of your life that couldn't actually give life. Listen to my spiritual father, my father in the faith. He says this. He says, most Americans would probably say they believe in God. But a believer, according to the Bible's point of view, is a person who loves God, who worships God, who treasures God, who desires to obey and please God above all else. A believer is someone who sees God not just just a part of her life, but as the defining reality of life itself. The problem, therefore, for us is that none of us automatically have God at the center of our lives. Instead, we place all kinds of other things there as well. The Bible calls this idolatry. It's when we take a good thing and make them into a God thing. He goes on to say, worship is not something that only religious people do. It's something everyone does. We all hold something. We have some functional center around which the rest of our life orients, just like soccer was mine. Career, family, relationship, success, independence, respect. All of these things are little gods. Their power over us is subtle, Bob Thune writes, but significant. You know, you know you've turned a good thing into a God thing when you're seeking to gain something from someone or something that it could never even give in the first place. Now, I want to look at this idea as it relates to Jesus' teaching here at the center point of the Gospel of Mark. This is literally the, the middle point. There's 16 chapters. We're at the end of chapter 8, and then 9 through 16 is a whole other section. And, and what I want to do is show it to you with, of course, three words that all start with P because it's Easter and I'm ready to preach, all right? So here they are. There is the profession, there is the problem, and then there's the paradox that Jesus offers us. There's the profession, the problem, and the paradox, and here we go. The profession of Peter, as we see, you are the Christ is the turning point in Mark's gospel, and you could say in history as we know it. If you summarize just a bit of where we've been, in the gospel of Mark, we have been journeying along with the disciples up to this point wondering who exactly is Jesus, right? And all of the healings, all of the teachings, all of the miracles, they've all been designed to communicate something about Jesus's identity. And as we see in this last chapter, the disciples just don't get it. Like, they're slow. They, they can't quite pick up what he's putting down, even though they've seen miracles with their own eyes. So at the midpoint of the story, Jesus realizes this, and he takes them on a hike. They've been doing ministry, and he takes them on a hike, traveling north of Jerusalem all the way up to Caesarea Philippi, a long journey up an incline all the way towards Mount Hermon, the highest point in the region, which would have looked over the entire Jordan Valley. And along the way, as they're sort of heading out of his area of ministry into this other place, which just happens to be the headquarters of Herod, the governor of the entire area, and the place where this brand new temple had been built to honor Roman gods. So the, the heart of their oppressor's government and the heart of idolatrous worship according to the Jewish people. Jesus takes them there, and then he says, who do you say that I am? He's unveiling for them his own identity as the Christ, the anointed one, 
the Messiah, the King of Kings. And that's the big idea that we've seen in the last chapter is that Jesus is not just a good teacher, but he is the divine leader we need. He's leading these disciples to a place that they could never get just by him telling them. They had to be led to a spot where they could begin to see, but they can't see clearly yet. Things are still fuzzy. You have to know that the whole book hinges right here. This is the center. Some scholars would break the book down geographically, like you've got his ministry to the Jews and then to the Gentiles and then in Jerusalem, but it makes the most sense with what Mark is writing for, why he's penned this, to put it in two halves, about the identity of Jesus and the purpose or the mission of Jesus. Jesus is revealed as the king of kings. Listen to scholar N.T. Wright. He says, it's vital for us to be clear on this point. Calling Jesus Messiah doesn't mean calling him divine. It doesn't mean calling him the second person of the Trinity. Mark believes those things, and he's going to show that Jesus was and is divine. But at this moment in the story, it's about something else. It's about a politically dangerous and theologically risky claim that Jesus is the king of Israel. That's scary talk. That's a risky place to be because it would face incredible opposition from his contemporaries and potentially from the Roman government. But Jesus claims to be the king of Israel, the heir to the throne of David. Here today, instead of the revealing of his identity, we have the dismantling of all of their ideas about what it meant to be the Christ. And Peter's profession is the key point. It is the moment of clarity. But as you see, the disciples are still a bit confused. Okay, so let's look at their confusion. The problem here comes in the next few verses. And he began to teach them, this is verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer and many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, our boy, he took him aside and rebuked him. Turning and seeing the disciples, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus after this incredible profession of faith that he is the Christ, begins to teach them about what that is going to mean. And as he starts teaching them, pulling together all these strands from the Hebrew scriptures about that, that the Messiah was to be glorified and was to reign, but also this chosen one was to suffer, they say, hey, wait a second, this is not what we signed up for. They start to question what is going on. Because Jesus says, listen, it's not that I could suffer. Like we could go on this risky mission and then all of a sudden it could turn out poorly. He's saying that's not, that's not like an option of what could happen. He's saying this must happen. This is the reason I came, not a possibility that could happen. In order for my mission to be complete, I must suffer. I must go to the cross and I must die and rise. Peter is the key source for this book. The guy right here who gets told, get behind me, Satan, he's, he's the source for these stories. 
And I think because of that, Peter wants us to feel the shift. And I think Mark wants us to feel the shift. That there's this idea of, I think we're clear. And then all of a sudden, everything is confusing again. I thought we had focused it, but now it's fuzzy and I don't know what's going on. He, Peter's going, I just profess you're the king. That you're the king to end all kings. And for that, Peter means victory. Peter means power. Peter means authority. And rightfully, he's going, how are you going to talk about dying when you're the one who's supposed to deliver us? Right? How are you going to talk about suffering and losing? You're the one who's supposed to win and bring about the restoration of all of Israel, both spiritually and politically. Brother Jesus, Peter says, this is not how it works. And he's sort of right. But he's not quite right. Where is Peter getting his idea about the Son of Man? Don't run over that phrase. Of course it means one who is like a human, a son of man. But in the scriptures, it has much more significance, especially in the prophets. And if you flip in your Bible, or want me to read, over to Daniel chapter 7, you'll see why. Because Peter and Jesus himself are pulling in these themes about who is the son of man. And let me read to you this funny bit about beasts and then about a king. Look at this. I, I looked, this is Daniel, the prophet, having a vision in the middle of the night. And he says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, a horn is speaking in his dream. And I looked and the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one, like who? A son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, which, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. This is what Peter hopes for. This is Peter saying, you're the Son of Man? You're the King? You're the Messiah? The one to deliver? Peter's like... Defeat isn't in the plan. Jesus, what are you talking about? But here's what Peter missed. Jesus was not just another king. He was a new kind of king. A kind of forever king whose approach to power was completely different than the way that the rest of the world, even the rest of the rulers, had approached power. I mean, if you think about what power does to us in our sort of flawed and imperfect ways, power corrupts us easily. We become like beasts at times by power. Look at the powers in our world and the corruption that comes. Beasts is a good term. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm coming with a kind of power that will completely flip the way in which power works. Power has a way of turning people into wild beasts, but I'm going to put that approach to power away and come with an incredibly new approach to power. He's saying that because of the Old Testament, I am coming to rule, yes. I am the lion, but I have to come as the lamb first. 
I have to come as the lamb first, and my approach to power will be to flip its script so that I can make not just Israel new, but the whole world new. The words of Jesus might sound sharp to you. Get behind me, Satan. But the matter is that important. The significance of this moment is huge because the way that God wields power is very different from the way the world uses power, from the way that the enemy of God twists it. And just like Peter, we can set our mind on the things of man. We can set our mind on the ways in which things work, the same old tired power dynamics, and strive to offer something in return for our soul. But that won't do. Let's look at the paradox. The paradox of the spiritual life, according to Jesus, is that to save your life, you must lose it. To save your life, you must lose it. So Jesus, having rebuked Peter, calls the whole group together. Not just the disciples now, but this is public for everyone. And here's what he says. We flip over to, to verse 34. And calling the crowd together with him, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, same word for follow, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake And the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, the son of of him, the son of man, will be ashamed when he comes in glory of his father and with the holy angels. The way to power Jesus is saying, even when you deserve power, even when you have the rights to all power, is not through the ways of man, but the way of God. The way to right standing, the, the way to right standing is not through the ways of God, the ways of man, but the ways of God. And, and Jesus wants Peter to know this. And I think Mark wants us to know this because if you set your mind, if you set your hope on the way that humankind tends to do things, the way that men and women approach things, is generally to be concerned underneath it all with what do we have to offer? Isn't that what we're most concerned about? What do we have to offer? Right? All of the approaches to life are varied forms of an equation that says, hey, if I do this, then I have something to offer, which is that. There are ways to give some kind of worth to others, even to God. There are ways to gain something from someone or something that can't give it to you in the first place. There are ways to put something else at the center of life, something that can't give life. And so we wonder, are we good enough? We wonder, have we accomplished enough? Are we respected and well-liked enough? Are we religious enough? We have all these different ways of trying to gain something in order to offer it. But in order to have spiritual life, Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to you, that you have to stop trying to gain. You have to stop trying to earn. 
You have to stop trying to offer something in return for your soul. The paradox of spiritual life is that it comes not by having something to offer, but by coming to the end of yourself so that you're ready to receive. Jesus uses these graphic, cryptic metaphors and analogies to help them see that spiritual death is the way to spiritual life. It only happens when we die, when we, we lose what is life to us, that we can receive what is truly life from him. And, and if, you, if you're wondering, this is Easter. Right? Easter in the empty tomb is the proof that only only when all of the ways you've been trying to build something for yourself, trying to gain something for yourself, trying to earn something that you could offer, get fall, or they fall and get placed in the tomb, only when they die can you actually come alive spiritually. You have to lose your life in order to save it. For us to get this, required an incredible sign. We've talked about signs so far, right? These feedings of thousands of people, these healings of people, these spiritual acts where those evil spirits are sent away. All of these different signs, but, but a much greater sign was needed in order for us to get that we needed to die in order that we might live. And that sign is the empty tomb itself. That sign is the grave where Jesus went in after hanging on the cross, laying in the tomb by his own will in love for you, he offered, he offered his own life in return for your soul. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that you've got to work to offer something that you might gain, but that Jesus offers everything you need in return for your soul that you might live. It's grace paradox. As the lion and lamb, Jesus had to lay in the tomb and then rise from the grave, showing that yes, the kingdom would come in power, but it would only come as it flipped the script on what power and position mean. Family, because Christ gave his life in love for you, you can lose your life and gain what's truly life from him. That is the invitation of the gospel. And we've seen the, the profession of Peter, the problem that Peter raises, and now this paradox statement, to save your, your life, you must lose it. But here at the middle point of the gospel, the middle point of this historical biography of who Jesus is and what he's done, we see both the, the identity of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus smashed together in a moment where he turns towards Jerusalem and to the cross. It is crucial that they got this. And it's crucial that you get this. This challenge of Jesus. Because Easter speaks to us. Easter, this celebration, speaks to us that at great cost and with great love, Jesus gave his life in return for yours. Easter is the proof. And the message calls for response. And so I want to invite you. Would you wrestle with the real Jesus who says, in a sense, he says, listen, true faith is not an add-on to your cart 
It's not an add-on, throw it in. It's a whole new way of shopping, right? True faith is not like an alignment at the chiropractor. It's like an entirely different skeletal structure. True faith is, is not just sort of like an app that you download on your phone. It's a completely different operating system. One in which you have to die to the old way that you might live to the new based on his work that he's done in return for your soul. Because he loves you. What's your functional center? What do you drift to orient your life around? Can you name one or two good things that you make God things? Revealing your own need to turn. Stop putting your mind on the things of man and receive the way of God. Would you do that today? Identify those things and receive the paradox of spiritual life that in order to save your your life, you must lose it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a beautiful passage right at the core of this gospel that we're studying. And my prayer is that the the dynamic it puts forward, this, this principle, this paradox Jesus holds out that to, to save your life you must lose it would be one that we put on repeat time and time again. And it doesn't mean that we have to sort of strip ourselves of everything, but it means that we need to replace what's at the center with that which can truly give life. And that's you. You, the one who has all authority over life and death. We praise you on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday, as the giver of life, the center of life, the only thing that can give us all the things that our hearts long for. So give us faith to receive you at your word and to believe the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.